Well, we had some time last week where we did a little bit of a prequel to our study in heresies and talking about really the standard against which you measure falsehood. You've got to have some standard of truth against which you measure falsehood to know that it's indeed false. Otherwise, you're just speculating or you're debating tit for tat on a matter, but you don't really have a standard to go by. But as we start our time today, I want you to just imagine a scenario for a moment as a way of introduction. In fact, this might be so hard for you to get in your mind that you might even need to close your eyes in a bit of a meditative state and listen to my words as I draw you into this scenario that is going to require a tremendous amount of vivid imagination. So imagine a scenario in which a person makes an assertion of wrongdoing against another person, and by that assertion calls into question the offending party's trustworthiness, credibility, integrity, and once believed soundness of character. Can you start to get a picture of possibly what that might look like? I know it's a little bit of a far-fetched scenario, but just think about it for a second. Not only that, but in this scenario, if this assertion of wrongdoing is believed by people, it will change the course of history, and it will have an effect on millions and millions of people. Now, can you imagine such a scenario? Well, with that introduction... I don't want to draw your attention to a news article or to commentary on recent events in our civic and political discourse, but I want to draw your attention to Genesis chapter 3 as we introduce our time. In this account that we've looked at before, that you've studied before, that, that we've talked about and referenced many, many times before, but it is such a foundational passage of scripture that sheds light on what we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time today. And I just want to kind of get it lodged into our minds so that we can understand that even as we look at these kinds of things throughout the course of history, that this is the strategy of the enemy from the very beginning. This this goes to the very core of Satan's strategy to assault and undermine the authority and credibility and veracity, not only of God's Word, but of God Himself. And it goes back to the the very beginning. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? First question. Calling into question the very word or statements or commands of God. And of course, as you see the the narrative unfold, you really begin to recognize how disingenuous that question is. It's a question that is loaded with the intent to undermine what God did or did not actually say. To call all of that into question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Now here comes the full-on assault. You will surely not die. Why? Well, God has been deceiving you. God's word can't be trusted. Here's the assertion. Here's what you need to believe. This is the truth. Here's the truth. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in other words, what God said to you can't be trusted. Not only that, but it is intended to restrict you and confine you and to keep something from you that really would be to your benefit. This knowledge, this, again, you could even fast forward into what we've been talking about in early church heresies, this secret knowledge, this special knowledge, this something that you're lacking. Well, God knows that in in eating of this, you will gain that, and he doesn't want you to have that. So not only is God's word not to be trusted, but whatever he says is not intended for your good, but intended to confine you or to restrict you or to keep you from something that is to your benefit. He knows that your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who with her ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And on goes the story. And this is, this is the recurring theme that we see taking place and cycling through all history. Not just the church's history, but all of history. This goes back to primeval history. And we see this strategy. And, and again... Um, this, this passage starts off in verse 1 by saying this, now the serpent was more crafty. So this same strategy obviously takes on a whole range of nuanced, clever, well-disguised angles and pathways and avenues into our belief system, our sense of need or want or desire or passion, angling toward getting us something that we think that we don't have now, that if we got it, we think it would be better for us. It it comes at us in all these very skillful and very crafty ways that, that have direct appeal to us. And this is the timeless sort of strategy This began the assault on the authority and trustworthiness of God's word. And it it goes on and on and on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is, is that believers, or at least professing believers throughout history, have been susceptible to these kinds of assaults time and time and time again. And have been led astray and even made shipwrecked, as the New Testament says, of the faith as a result of vulnerability and susceptibility to these kinds of assaults. It really is an assault against the truthfulness of God himself. Can God be trusted? 
Is his word authoritative and true? Well, we talked last week about how there, there are some who would argue that prior to, say, the, the third or fourth century, that we didn't really have you know, a reliable canon, if you will, of Scripture, of New Testament Scripture, and that the way that the gospel message went out into the entire known world and in, and in major ways penetrated the pagan world, the unbelieving world, the world of pagan idolatry and, and Gentile forms of worship and mystery religions and all these kinds of things that the gospel message penetrated, that there was a period of time in which the, the content of the truth in the New Testament was not very well defined or very well understood widely. And of course, we looked last week at how that's really not historically accurate, that there was clearly what, what, um, what Bruce Shelley calls a, uh, what do you call it, a functional orthodoxy. There was a functional orthodoxy. So in other words, even though the New Testament church, the early church in the first few centuries, did not have a 27-book New Testament bound together with a 39-book Old Testament that they carried around in their satchel or whatever, that there was clear understanding of the authority of the, the truth of Scripture as it was being revealed in that time and subsequent to that being acknowledged and recognized as authoritative and as inspired by God. Now, I want to kind of carry that discussion forward in, in, in a more formal way from a historical perspective and talk more specifically about the canon of Scripture. Like, how did we arrive at, how did we get the books of the Bible that we currently have? What was that historical progress and process, and what did it look like, and what were some of the key elements of it? But I want to draw a distinction, a, a slight distinction, and then some parallel between the idea or the principle or the process of canonicity, this rule of faith. Remember, canon is a word that means ruler or measuring rod. And so the canon of Scripture is, again, this idea of rule of faith, what we measure truth and error against, what is the revealed Word of God. And so you have this, you have under this, in this discussion, circling around this discussion, you have a lot of different important sort of doctrinal and theological matters that you could discuss and that are important to discuss, but we aren't going to have time to, to dig into them too deeply. I just want to kind of make reference to them as to their significance, as to their distinction, but also to some of the common elements of them with this idea of the canon of Scripture or the development of the canon of Scripture, the, the, the books of the Bible, if you want to put it in more common vernacular. And, and there's a distinction between canonicity and the principle or doctrine of revelation and inspiration. They're not separate. They're not like distinct in that they, they're totally unrelated. They're certainly interrelated. But I want to draw a slight distinction between the two. And, and you can turn, if you want to, to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is kind of one of those... Um, salient passage of Scripture that is often referred to as we look at the principles of inspiration and the authority of Scripture and, and the revelation of God through His Word and the record of that revelation, those kinds of things. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is a, re- a reference not only to Peter's experience in time and space with Christ, both in his fully God, fully human incarnate form, but also in his transfigured form on the mount where his, the, 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 his glory was revealed to Peter and a few of the other disciples. But he, so, so he's testifying here to what he actually saw. This is not just a reference to, though, his his historical experience in time and space, but it's also a reference to revelation, that he was the recipient of revelation. This is is distinct from deciding that something that was written by someone who claimed to be an author of something is authoritative. So you see the slight distinction there. This is him testifying to Christ revealing his glory to him directly. He says, for when we received honor, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, now this is this gets into a little bit of this is the inter, intersection of canonicity and inspiration and revelation right here where he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So, in other words, it doesn't, it's not really particularly helpful to you and to me if all we can rely upon as authoritative is direct revelation. Right? I mean, I wasn't on the mountain in which the, the, the glory of God was revealed. I wasn't alive during the time of Christ. I, I didn't see it. So even Peter is affirming that there's a more sure word that we have, that even we were able to rely upon. And looking back at the Old Testament prophecies, and even for them, these believers at this time, what New Testament prophecy and instruction and teaching from the apostles was coming forth, it's a more sure word because... It's, it carries authority, the authority of God's revelation, beyond that direct experience and exposure. So it's a significant distinction, but also an important interdependency here. He, said, he goes on to say in verse, well, continuing on in verse uh, 19, this, this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then verse 20, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is, this, is to, this is to inspiration here. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, as we talked about last week, and I want to just continue to reemphasize that what we're dealing with is a sovereign work of God, whether you're talking about the direct revelation of God himself to men, even in as Peter is describing here, whether you're talking about him inspiring his word to be written down so that others will have a more sure word and they will be able to pay attention to it and have their, their 
life and understanding informed and their understanding of who God is informed by truth and by, by who God is directly from inspiring his, his revelation to others. But he, he, he emphasizes this point that, that this is an, a sovereign work of God. That the, the, the Scripture is the Word of God and it is given by God Himself. Well, I would say, and I would, I would argue, that when you look through history in a similar way, although it manifests itself in a, a different way, a different experience in time and in space, the canonicity of the Scriptures was also a sovereign work of God. This is not something that took place. In other words, when you think of how we got the Bible, if you hear arguments or think about it in ways that, that are purely man-centered in their orientation, that at some point along the way in history, a bunch of dudes got together with robes and you know, big hats and said, we're going to say, we're going to vote and we're going to say, this is the Bible. That is not a clear and accurate understanding both of the history of canonicity nor of how God has worked to reveal himself, to reveal himself by the Holy Spirit to men who wrote things down and, who, and how the church and God's people recognized these things as God's word and they just acknowledged them. It was later, like it was kind of an after-the-fact kind of deal where church councils would come along and say, this is, this is the list. So I want to just make sure... We think about this both sort of doctrinally and theologically, but also from a historical pr- progression perspective. That, that, that canonicity was not the result of you know, a third or fourth century church council getting together and saying, this is the canon. We now have the Bible. Everybody can rest easy. Okay? Just wanted to draw that distinction. Now, in our discussion of heresies and this need for a standard against which you measure truth from lie, you discern truth from error, and you have a means by which you refute error, obviously, heresy puts an emphasis on the necessity of orthodoxy, the necessity of a standard, the necessity of clearly understood and accepted and adopted and submitted to doctrine or truth. And so in this early period of the life of the New Testament church, um, that is what you have beginning to emerge as a, a, a consensus and a, and a, and a response and an actual, an actual need uh, in the ongoing work of God amongst his people. Orthodox is just conforming to established doctrine, especially in religion. That's a, just a dictionary definition. So when I say orthodox, I don't, I'm not referring to some kind of you know, Eastern Orthodox institutional definition of it or anything other than just established doctrine, authority, truth, and, and in this case, the standard of God's word. It, it answers the question, what is authoritative? What is the authoritative standard? What is the truth? How do we know how to say that's not true? That's not correct. That's against God's word. You have to have an understood standard. And as we've said, there's, there was no shortage of aberrant teachings. There was no shortage of jumping off points from the core of the gospel to aberrant versions of that. That's, that's, I mean, there was people who would, who would take Gnosticism 
and try to put a Christian sort of slant on it, but it was nonetheless heretical in, in, in its orientation. But it, it swept up many, many, many people in, in terms of their understanding of what Christianity was or what the gospel really was. The same was true for some of the other heresies that we had talked about. But I think that as we look at this, you know, the, the, the dilemma that the early church faced... I think is best sort of summed up or maybe characterized by what I've just termed the Marcion Montanus dilemma. Because these two heresies, uh, the heresies of these two men, kind of create this, this spectrum of thinking and, and, and belief that really brought this, this move to clarify what is authoritative and what is not to the forefront. Of course, we talked about Marcion, um, but it was really Marcion's canon. Marcion was the first to really put forward a version of the New Testament. Like a literal, this is the New Testament. This is, these are the authoritative writings. Marcion was the first to actually formally do that. And as you recall, Marcion was really one who had sort of imbibed a, a, a variant of, of Gnosticism in, in his belief, in his version of Christianity, as you might call it. But in his canon, in his version of the New Testament, and this is uh, between 8140 and 8144, he completely threw out the Old Testament. Remember he said the Old Testament God was the creator and designer of evil, and I'm summarizing very broadly here, and his orientation was toward wrath and judgment and conquest, and so he's not even the same God. And that's really a dualistic notion of Gnosticism. And so, of course, the Old Testament for the New Testament or New Covenant believer is not authoritative. It's just completely thrown out. So his Bible, if you will, completely eliminated the Old Testament. But it went even further because what do you find in the writings of the Gospels or in the writings of Paul but references to the Old Testament? So he had a problem there. So in terms of his Gospel uh, accounts, he adopted a truncated version of Luke's Gospel in which he had to throw out anything, any reference to Judaism or anything referencing that would that would um, speak of the Old Testament being authoritative or being scripture, and certainly throwing out something like the the, the virgin birth. He had a Gnostic conception of Christ, um, and so him being born in human form would not be uh, suitable to his version of Christianity. So he had this truncated version of Luke's gospel. And then he only adopted 11 of, Paul, of Paul's epistles. And there was the canon. Now here's the thing, as we talked about before, even though he was excommunicated from the church formally in, I think, AD 144, he actually established what you might call a denomination of his own, a movement of his own. And it had significant following. It was highly organized. He had church hierarchy. He had bishops. He had, I mean, it was a well-organized movement. And it, and it sustained itself for well over a century. It was significant. But it was based upon his, his view or, or his, his canon. The belief and practice of this church, if you will, was based upon his canon of Scripture. And it was obviously an adulterated 
canon. On the other extreme, you have Montanus. And if you recall, Montanus, this is about AD 156, between about AD 156 and AD 172, following Marcion, he basically thought of himself as the embodiment of the paraclete, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit, him and his two prophetesses, and basically was one who would endorse ongoing revelation from God. Ecstatic, prophetic utterances. So you've got on one extreme, you've got here's, here's the canon of Scripture, and I'm giving you the, these are the documents that you must adhere to. And it's, it's erroneous in its foundational informing principles. On the other extreme, you have Montanus who says, God is still revealing himself. This is the, the new covenant era is the era of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is speaking, and he's speaking through me and my prophetesses, and he's providing ongoing revelation. So you can imagine in that day and time, in that period of early church's history, you have a list of books that has been sort of adulterated in, in light of what the, the full revelation of God is, but it's being put forward as authoritative. This is your body of belief upon which you base your faith and practice. And on the other extreme, you have this other sort of movement that is, there's more, and then there's more. And then there's more, and you have to get the next revelation and the next utterance to know what the next word from God is going to be. That kind of represents the, the sort of the two extremes on this spectrum. And so the, these questions of what constitutes the authoritative rule of faith, how is revelation from God identified and affirmed and transmitted? I mean, that, these are questions that the church was, was having to address and deal with and respond to these questions and these, these things that were being raised by these heretical teachings. And we said last time that the Old Testament scriptures, and this is what is, is you know, this completely is in contrast, or it's really contrary to Marcion's belief, but the Old Testament canon, what we have is the 39 books of the Old Testament, was accepted by the New Testament church as authoritative word from God. That was, that was an accepted truth. Bruce Shelley, historian, said this, since the first Christians were all Jews, Christianity was never without a canon, or as we say, scripture. Christians almost without exception embraced the Old Testament as their own. Early Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises running through the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was in the mix from the very beginning. Justo Gonzalez says it this way, There was no question except among Gnostics and Marcionites that the Hebrew Scriptures were part of the Christian canon. This was important as proof that God had been preparing the way for the advent of Christianity and even as a way of understanding the nature of the God who had been revealed in Jesus Christ. Christian faith was the fulfillment of the hope of Israel and not a sudden apparition from heaven. There are those that would argue that this is not the case that somehow there is this clear delineation and separation of Old Testament adoption and understanding as authoritative versus the New Testament gospel message and gospel witness and writing of the apostles and that kind of thing. It was a totally separate thing and that people did not embrace the Old Testament even in that time. It's not, not historically accurate. John MacArthur writes even more explicitly, with regard to the Old Testament by the time of Christ... All of the Old Testament had been written and accepted in the Jewish community. 
The last book, Malachi, had been completed about 430 B.C. Not only does the Old Testament canon of Christ's day conform to the Old Testament which has since been used throughout the centuries, but it does not contain the uninspired and spurious Apocrypha, that group of 14 rogue writings which were written after Malachi and attached to the Old Testament about 200 to 150 B.C. in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint appearing to this very day in some versions of the Bible. For example, the Catholic Bible includes these apocryphal books that were written after Malachi. However, not one passage from the Apocrypha is cited by any New Testament writer, nor did Jesus affirm any of it as he recognized the Old Testament canon of his era. By Christ's time, the Old Testament canon had been divided up into two lists of 22 or 24 books respectively, each of which contained all the same material as the 39 books of our modern versions. In the 22-book canon, Jeremiah and Lamentations were considered as one, as were Judges and Ruth. So in other words, the number of books was because of some of the consolidation of, of the books um, that are now, you know, have been sort of divided. And then, of course, Josephus in AD 95, it indicated that the 39 books that we have were recognized as authoritative. So the Old Testament was established as authoritative, and it was carried forward into gospel witness. And as we said last time, it was read from in, in, as a part of early church worship, where there was Jew and Gentile alike. This was not just some exclusive domain of the Jewish Christians. The Old Testament was authoritative, and the Christian, early Christians understood that the Christian faith and the coming of Christ was in fulfillment of what was written in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. Not some new thing, not some new, detached, isolated thing. Yes, new, but not detached, not completely separate from, but fulfillment of. Well, then you get to the New Testament scriptures. So you have already the existence, the established, well-established existence of the Old Testament in the Old Testament canon, agreed upon and understood as authoritative, and also invested into the discipleship work of the early church in teaching the Old Testament. I mean, you see in, the old, in, the, in, the, in Acts and in other places where there's constant reference to Old Testament prophecy as a way of preaching and proclaiming the gospel message. So that was, that was part and parcel to what early church worship and early church discipleship looked like. But then we come to the, the New Testament, and of course you have the writing of the New Testament books. That's, that, this is like real time now. This is, this is underway. So you've got you know, writings of, of, of gospel narrative and of epistles, letters, that are taking place some 30 plus years after the time of Acts. Right, and so you've got in you know eighty sixty and forward, you've got writings taking place and being circulated. So you have this this period of time where the New Testament it can't be canonized because it's for a period of time it's actually being written and distributed and 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 circulated and taught. But what we do have is uh, the reference of Acts chapter two forty two that there was clearly a devotion to what the apostles were teaching. So this, this devotion of the New Testament church to the apostles' teaching was part and parcel to their gathering. It's what they did when they gathered together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, over the centuries, there was some widely recognized principles that were used to, to sort of validate the writings of the New Testament, which became recognized and acknowledged as divine as inspired by God and divine in their orientation. 
And so the, I'll put them in the form of questions that had to be sort of answered by these books for them to be deemed authoritative. First, can this text be traced back to an apostolic eyewitness? Again, referencing Acts 2.42, it was the apostles' teaching to which they were devoting themselves, to which they were recognizing their authority. All throughout Acts, you see their, their authority being validated, and their teaching actually being validated by signs and wonders and miracles. They were spokesmen for God. They were called by Christ himself, and they were sent forth to bring the very word of God to his people in the New Covenant and in the new message of the gospel, which was fulfillment of Old Testament teaching. So can it be traced to an apostolic eyewitness? The second major principle or question is, is this text widely accepted by churches around the world as authoritative and useful? So in other words, there was, there was wide acceptance. We talked about this last time, how you have these early church fathers who are writing from different places all throughout the Roman Empire. So in other words, their, their area of operation, their, their region of exposure to what's going on in the life of the church, what's being taught, what's being read, what's being understood, are stationed in different parts of the Roman Empire and spread far and wide. But yet, anytime you read any of their summaries of Christian doctrine, they're all strikingly the same. They're all very similar, which means that this widespread circulation of gospel truth was significant. It was not a small thing. It was not sort of a hit or miss. There was the encouragement that, that the Apostle Paul gave in his writings, for example, to send these letters on or to circulate these letters or to read these letters aloud was practiced, and it was practiced widely. The third principle was, does this text agree with other texts that we know for sure come from apostolic eyewitnesses? You could extend that to say, is it in agreement with Old Testament revelation as well? In other words, you're not going to have an endorsement as authoritative, something that is in direct contradiction with something that was already deemed to be authoritative and inspired. And then finally, does this text have internal proof of its inspiration. In other words, does it carry authority in and of itself? Does it has it has it been been uh, realized and recognized as authoritative and from God just internally? Now, of course, that's not an isolated principle. It's a principle that is in concert with these other principles, but it's a definitely an important principle nonetheless. So you have the apostles' teaching as this point of devotion that we have referenced in Acts. We know this to be the case. But in terms of the writings themselves, history would tell us that the Gospels, the Gospel narratives, were really the first to be recognized and as inspired and authoritative. I want to read an excerpt from Gonzalez's book just to give you a sense of this. He says this about the Gospels. He says, As to what is now called the New Testament... The Gospels were the first to attain general recognition. It is important to note that those early Christians decided to include more than one Gospel in their canon. This is a really important point. Apparently, churches in some cities or regions had a particular Gospel which was most closely connected to their history and traditions. Such was the case, for instance, with the Gospel of Luke in Antioch and the surrounding area. A contact among these churches developed. They began sharing their manuscripts and traditions, and thus the acceptance and use of a variety of Gospels 
came to be seen as a sign of the unity of the church. At a later time, many have pointed out the inconsistencies among the four Gospels in matters of detail. You know, these apparent contradictions that you have in the Gospels and that kind of thing that become matters of contextual and historical and grammatical interpretation and can be understood. But people point out these things as inconsistencies among the four Gospels in matters of the detail. The early Christians were well aware of these differences, and that was precisely one of the main reasons why they insisted in using more than one book. They did this as a direct response to the challenge of Marcion and Gnosticism. Many Gnostic teachers claimed that the heavenly messenger had trusted his secret knowledge to a particular disciple who alone was the true interpreter of the message. Remember what Peter said, a more sure word. I have been given direct revelation. I have seen, I have witnessed it myself. I was on the mountain, but we have a more sure word. That's a, that's a, this is a, a reference to this from history, that they valued the, the several gospel accounts as more affirming. Thus, the various Gnostic groups who had a book that claimed to present the true teachings of Jesus, or thus, various Gnostic groups had a book that claimed to present the true teachings of Jesus. Such were, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Truth of the Valentinian Gnostics. Marcion used the Gospel of Luke, from which he had deleted all references to Judaism or to the Hebrew Scriptures. In response to this situation, the church at large sought to show that its doctrines were not based on the supposed witness of a single apostle or gospel, but on the consensus of the entire apostolic tradition. The very fact that the various gospels differed in matters of detail, but agreed on the basic issues at stake, made their agreement a more convincing argument. Against Marcion's expurgated gospel of Luke, the church offered a consensus of a number of gospels, sometimes three, sometimes four, since the fourth gospel was somewhat slower in gaining universal acceptance. Against the secret traditions and private interpretations of the Gnostics, the church had recourse to an open tradition known to all and to the multiplicity of the witnesses of the Gospels. So you see how even God used the various inspiration of multiple writers to provide an account of Christ and His mission and His work as a way to affirm the authority of His message and as a way of refutation against this idea of singular secret message that you have to kind of get from one singular person as the authority. In other words, God used multiple sources, multiple men to bring His Word and His message. And this is, this is in fact, what happened. Next, you have the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles that were... That, sort of recognized, were recognized as inspired and authoritative early on. Again, Gonzalez, next to the Gospels, the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles enjoyed early recognition. Thus, by the end of the second century, the core of the canon was established. The four Gospels, Acts, and the Pauline epistles. On the shorter books that appear toward the end of the present canon, there was no consensus until a much later date, but there also was little debate. The book of Revelation, widely accepted by the 3rd century, was questioned after the conversion of Constantine for its words about the prevailing culture and the empire seemed too harsh. So, we don't like it, we're not going to accept it as authoritative. It was in the second half of the 4th century that a complete consensus was achieved regarding exactly which books ought to be included in the New Testament and which ought not to be included. Even then, this was not decided by an official council nor by any other decision-making body. 
but was rather a matter of consensus, which in itself shows that very few considered this a burning issue. In other words, they understood this as to be authoritative. It was, it was clear to them, which in itself shows that very few considered it a burning issue. Furthermore, in this entire process, the guiding concern was not theology in the abstract sense, but the life of worship, for the main question was, in this book to be read, when, uh, for the main question was, is this book to be read when the church gathers for worship? So you have sort of in a nutshell a summary of how these books came to be recognized by the church as authoritative and true. Now this doesn't speak to obviously, you know, um, to manuscript writing and passing down and, and, and transmission of these original texts, but it gives you a sense from history of how the early church the, the, in the first few centuries of its existence, recognized, saw, understood, and affirmed the testimony of the apostles' teaching of the gospel writers and so on, and saw it as authoritative. And that became the standard against which doctrine was presented, or error, error was refuted, and from which doctrine, sound doctrine, was presented and taught. So, then you have to ask yourself the question, well, what about the Montanus side of this? What about ongoing revelation? If the church was recognizing at that time these texts as authoritative, they, they passed these tests, in other words. They, they passed the test of being able to be traced back to apostolic eyewitnesses or their associates. So, for example, Luke was not an apostle, but he was a traveling companion of Paul, and he was an associate of the, the, the apostle, and, and the other apostles as well. That kind of connection, that kind of uh, apostolic eyewitness, widely accepted and, 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 and endorsed and affirmed as authoritative and useful, and it agreed with other texts, and it, it, it made sense coherently from Old Testament redemptive history through the New Covenant and the, the advent of, of Christ and his, his atonement and his work on the cross and his commission to go and make known to others this salvation in him. But what about ongoing revelation? What about Montanus? Well, the question or the issue was not a question of has the Holy Spirit fallen silent, which is oftentimes what you hear even today when it comes to this issue of, you know, Shane talked about it from First Thessalonians. Was this last week when you talked about despising prophecies or the week before? can't remember. Last week, yeah. There's, there's an, an accusation that can be leveled against those who would say that, that there is no ongoing, authoritative, new revelatory prophecy being proclaimed today as a special you know, word from the Lord, thus saith the Lord kind of prophetic utterance. Some would consider that to be a despising of prophecies, and even further would argue that that represents someone who is quenching the Holy Spirit, or who doesn't believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work today amongst his people and amongst the church. That is an argument that can be leveled and was leveled from Montanus himself against the church in that time. But Bruce Shelley kind of sums up this principle, I think, well when he says this. It was not that the church ceased to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference was that in the first days, the Holy Spirit had enabled men to write the sacred books of the Christian faith, in the later days, 
the Holy Spirit enabled men to understand, to interpret, and to apply what had been written. And therein lies the key distinction here. And when you look throughout church history, you do not see, I mean, we're gonna, and we're going to see this as we kind of press forward in our study, how you're going to see these different waves of movement where, where Scripture, again, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, where Scripture really is under assault. The veracity, reliability, authority, trustworthiness of God's revealed Word is under assault. When you get into sort of the extreme uh, manifestations of prophetic movements and that kind of thing, at the core of that, behind that, the operating presupposition is that there is something lacking or missing from what we already have that's already been understood, acknowledged, delivered, once delivered, authoritative, empowering the church for all these centuries. It, it's, it's, an, it's an undermining of the authority and sufficiency of that delivered truth, that delivered word. What the Holy Spirit is doing now is enabling us to see it, to understand it, to interpret it, and to rightly apply it to our lives in an ongoing way through obedience, through faithfulness, through sanctification. When you think about what's going on in our, even in our public discourse, (coughs) is it not indeed another example of the importance of being able to rely upon authoritative, revealed truth. To be able to rely upon the veracity of someone's testimony of what is true and what is right and what is sound. And is it not indeed interesting to think about what's going on in our public discourse to see how people are so quick to draw sweeping and immensely consequential judgments with almost no evidence other than an assertion. I don't make that as a political statement. I make that as a statement of reference to Genesis chapter 3. This is in all of us. We are all susceptible to being led astray by falsehood. We are all susceptible to being, being if we're, I mean, if we're not renewing our minds and being sanctified in the truth. We're all susceptible to being enticed into grabbing hold of some morsel of truth, some morsel of revelation, some, something that's going to give us some new insight, some new ability, some new sense of power or authority or influence or whatever it might be. We're all susceptible to that. At the very core of it is this tendency that you see perfectly illustrated in Genesis chapter 3. So when it comes to the testimony of God's Word, and even, in fact, when we think about what's been going on in, in light of sort of some of the Christian debates and, and things that have been written, even last week there was a, an opinion piece on Fox News from Andy Stanley just kind of re, reiterating this belief that, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why people are uh, leaving the faith and abandoning the church is because of this Bible-told-me-so Bible kind of teaching. And that couldn't be further from the truth historically. This, I mean, you go back to even the passage in Second Peter. This was always about the more sure word that had been delivered, that was written and understood and able to be distributed and disseminated to God's people. 
It's always been about that. Of course, the, it's, it's what it communicates is what saves and what sanctifies. It's the person of Christ that we understand from God's Word and that we learn about from God's Word is, is who's, who is the one who saves and sanctifies. But, but it's transmitted to us through a written document. And to just sidestep that for some other semantical argument for the gospel is a complete, it's at minimum, a, a complete misstatement of history. For our purposes, we'll just leave it there. There's so much more you could say. But guys, I just want to reiterate the fact that we have a sure word. We can be confident in its authority. And we can also be confident that there will always be assaults against it. Always be assaults against it. From the very beginning, through history, to right now. I like the quote from Robbie Zacharias as it relates to this, because I think that all we're, we're oftentimes we're, we're wanting to enter into the marketplace of ideas and we're wanting to, to put forward our, our defense of the Christian faith with ironclad, irrefutable argumentation that once someone hears it and is confronted by it, they will be either bowing on the ground, crying out to God in repentance, or they will be crumbling before you in, in complete humiliation, seeing that their whole foundation of reason that they built their lives on has just been completely decimated by your coherent argument. Like we go into those kinds of discussions wanting that kind of ironclad confidence and certainty to be behind us. But listen to this quote by Ravi Zacharias in his book, The End of Reason. God has put enough into this world to make faith in Him a most reasonable thing, but He has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. People do not walk away from, quote-unquote, the faith because of some lack of cleverness on the part of the evangelist. They walk away from the faith because, as John says, they were never really one of us. In other words, people come to faith in Christ because of whose work ultimately? Who saves? Who sanctifies? Who keeps? And the second we begin to rely upon man's ability to articulate a message, we are drifting toward some version of one of these heresies, toward Gnosticism. I know how to craft the message in the right, perfect way so that people will believe it and be saved. Or we drift toward some version of New Testament revelation that wants to sort of sidestep the Old Testament because it's too harsh and it puts forward a God that really we're uncomfortable with. That is an aberration of history, and it's really an aberration of, of gospel witness as well. So this is the world that we're living in, and we need to take um, assurance from what, we've, what we can see clearly from history and what we know in our own lives personally, that God's Word is true, and we can trust it. And our responsibility is to just proclaim it carefully, thoughtfully, compassionately, clearly, and consistently, and trust God to do His work. Any final thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? I know I kind of just dumped a lot on you and didn't give you a chance to participate much. I apologize for that.
All right, let's pray.